This is Daniel Fagella, and you're listening to the AI in Business podcast. It is Monday, so we are covering our AI success factors episode. Every Monday, we cover one enterprise AI use case with a measurable ROI, and we talk about what made that project successful. What were the things that the teams and companies did to work together to actually bring that project to life? And today, we're working in the transportation space. When you think transportation, you might be asking, okay, we're going to be talking about airplanes today. We're going to talk about big shipping containers going over the oceans. We're going to talk about autonomous vehicles. Well, today we're talking about rail. That's right, trains. Now, you may not know this, but the rail industry in the United States contributes many tens of billions of dollars to our GDP here. And in many countries in Europe and in Asia, rail is an even bigger deal. This week, we speak specifically on the topic of maintaining railways. What does it look like to adopt predictive maintenance in a space that is very old indeed? That is what we go into today. And our guest is Adam Bonifield. When I first met Adam, he was the VP of Artificial Intelligence and Analytics at Airbus. Airbus is a $70 billion company in terms of revenue, so very large uh, defense and aerospace firm. Before that, he was a White House Presidential Innovation Fellow for two years. And after his four years at Airbus, he has since become the CEO of Connex. Connex applies their AI technology to the rail space. And today we're talking about a use case between Connex and Network Rail, a rather large railway firm in the United Kingdom. The use case in this episode is unique. We do not talk about computer vision in the rail space very often here on the show, but it's really interesting to see how predictive maintenance is applied again to a very old industry. So many of you tuned in are working in old industries. Many of the aspects of adoption and working with subject matter experts are going to be directly transferable to you, the listener. But in addition to that, we end with the challenges of achieving ground truth data. This is especially hard in the heavy industry space, but it applies essentially to every AI project. Adam walks us through why achieving ground truth data was so critical for this project and what it looked like to work together with Network Rail to be able to make those key distinctions in terms of computer vision and and imagery that would define the success of the project and the eventual expansion of their project with Network Rail. So an interesting use case, a great takeaway, and great to be able to have Adam back with us. People often ask, how do you get your great guests? Luckily, in many cases, the answer is they are listeners. So I am grateful as heck to have people who are VP of AI at 70 billion dollar companies like Adam who have been fans of our show and when I found an excuse to bring him back on he's working with a new company doing exciting things he reached back out and we made this happen so it's a pleasure to have him back with us it's a pleasure to have him as a listener and it's cool to have some of our listeners share some of what they've learned with other listeners and that's exactly what Adam's doing here today so without further ado let's fly right in this is Adam Bonifield with Connex here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, Adam, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's good to be back. Yeah, what three long years. We realized off microphone that it it was pre-COVID when we spoke last, but I certainly enjoyed the chat. I'm glad you did, too, and it's fun to have you back. You are in a whole new position at a whole new company, and we've got you on the Success Factor series, which for me is fun because uh, we've enjoyed this new series kicking off this year, and you guys are in a fun industry. We have a pretty cool use case in the rail space with you guys. Talk a little bit about who you worked with, and also what was the business problem, just to tee up the episode. Yeah, sure. At Conux, we worked with the rail infrastructure provider. So these are the guys that maintain the tracks that we all use to get from place to place. And the the story that I thought would be nice to talk about is our work inside the UK with Network Rail. So you know they have they have a, a big challenge. It's, it's a big nation, series of countries that 
connects across many, many different geographical divides. And, and so their job is to really maintain this infrastructure and all the different pieces of the track to make sure it, it lasts as long as possible and requires maintenance as rarely as possible. And so this is important because every time you need to maintain those tracks or the switches and crossings and everything everything connected to it, you have to you know, bring people into the environment, so which could be, you know, obviously you want to do it as rarely as possible. And then often you need to, you know, kind of close down rail, you know, yeah. you need to have trains operate at low speeds in order to make sure things are safe. So this is an expensive problem. And, and it's especially problematic just because of, you know, the goals that we have as a planet, you know, we're trying to double the capacity of our railway infrastructure. It's very hard to create new tracks. So what we have to do is really maintain the the operational uptime of the stuff we have and keep it running as efficiently as possible. And okay. this is the major challenge for companies like Network Rail. So they've got, of course, they want to reduce downtime. They want you know happy customers. They want productive things to happen on their rails, right? They can't have them sit fallow uh, for that long. And also, presumably, some of these things, you know, switches, crosses, rust, whatever the case may be, objects. These are safety hazards too. So it's, it feels like there's a productivity side and then there's also a risk side, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, exactly. You want to make sure that you take action prior to something failing. And, yes. and listen, I mean, this app, this basically doesn't happen. We don't ever get to the point of failure. But if we get close to a point of failure, then we have to take more dramatic action in order to take corrective action. So yeah. the best way to spot a problem is way, way, way far in advance. It can be scheduled, it can be maintained, you know, it can be fixed and then maintained in a lot more efficient way. And this is the sort of big philosophy behind industrial predictive maintenance in basically every field. So basically what you're saying is let's be smart about the way we schedule maintenance activities in ways that anticipates failure before they happen, before we even get close to it happening, because the cost of that starts to escalate as you get closer and closer to the failure mode. A hundred percent. And we've seen this with companies making things as small as electronics for consumers, all the way up to jet engines, all the way up to giant shipping boats. Uh, you know, we've had vast array of, of use cases in this space. Not that many in rail though. So I think this will be fun. Just to put a little detail on it, when we think about what needs to be maintained, in your guy's case, just the, the problem space you operate in, is it primarily the rails and their surrounds itself? Because obviously, there's so many other elements of trains and things that maybe potentially need to be maintained on the, the equipment itself. There's there's the rail itself. There's maybe the gates or other things. What are you working on? Yeah, so we're, we're looking at the switches and crossings, to use sort of British parlance. So we're looking at the junctions between the rails, which are some of the most important assets inside of uh, rail infrastructure. And so basically, if we think about their maintenance regime, what you know an infrastructure provider does is looks at problems in the rail, but according to a fixed schedule, because we don't have the data for when things will degrade and how, we kind of have a maintenance regime that's that's in this very theoretical model where we're, we're going out in fixed intervals, visually inspecting the track, and then doing something called tamping, which is basically kind of tamping down the gravel of the track in order to make sure that the rail is as secured as possible into its pulsing. Got it. Okay, cool. So that's our problem space, and that's the reason they wanted to work with you. Talk a little bit about the actions taken with this particular firm and also the success results you're able to share. I know that you guys have some stuff published on your site, and obviously this was a win for you. What did you do, and what were the results? Yeah, so, I mean, the story really starts with data. I mean, you know, as I said, if you're doing this in kind of fixed intervals ways, it's because you don't, you know, have more data to determine when to do what and, and wh where there's a problem. And, and the funny thing is the problem is not just 
letting you know things go unintervened. The problem is also just doing tons of interventions that aren't necessary. I mean, both are bad, right? You want to intervene in the right way and you want to be able to predict when the kind of intervention will be successful. And so we started with just hardware, right? So we took a device out, you know, it's a device that we built and we attached it to these switches and started just monitoring the vertical displacement of these things called sleepers that sit on top of the track. So when the sleeper is displaced, right, it will go up and down. And that happens when when trains go over it. And as you can imagine, the more displacement you get, the more you have a problem, the more you really want to do that tamping activity and, and make sure it's secure. Got it. What you have essentially is this accelerometer, which is a little device inside of the inside of our device, a little sensor inside of our device that will vibrate up and down, right? And the the more the vibration you get, the greater the displacement that's happening. But it's not a one-to-one. I mean, this is where AI comes in. So all you get is this tiny, tiny little signal. So you get this little vibration caused by the train. And then we use that to infer a a whole host of different things. We look at the overall health of the the track bed, you know, the the gravel that I was describing, how much ballast stability is there, how much degradation is happening and how quickly, and what kind of acceleration forces are happening in the device to basically detect wear on, on some of the most important pieces of the switch. And then we also try to measure things like the load being borne, because obviously if you're bearing more load, then that's a sign that you're um, having a greater impact that you might need to do maintenance more. So we look at the actual usage, we look at the amount of pressure, we look at the impact of the different kinds of trains that will go on it. And then finally, we look at, did any maintenance activities actually work? So maintenance, as I said, happens all the time, but sometimes you know, you'll get the same amount of displacement happening after you do a maintenance activity. Sometimes you might even get more if the activity was done poorly. And and most of the time, what you want to see is you want to see a maintenance activity done and it actually working. And if you could imagine, you know, for the average infrastructure provider, they have to just hope that their maintenance activities are working. They don't know whether or not it works until they check again and, you know, in that regular schedule. So this is the way in which data starts to create a completely different operating environment where you're able to make smarter decisions, but then you're also able to know if those decisions paid off. And this is the philosophy behind introducing some of these IoT and AI tools inside of this this very, very old operating environment. Got it. So there's a component here of a new set of sensors. There's also a component here of the dashboard that we're using to measure and actually determine our improvements here that had to happen with this firm? Is it kind of equal parts both when it comes to the work you're doing? Yeah, it's exactly exactly right. It's three parts. It's it's the data collection. So it's it's basically deploying these sensors all throughout the operating environment, which is like a huge task. So imagine hundreds and hundreds of these devices constantly checking all around the network what is the health of the of the operating environment. And then sending that data to the cloud and then analyzing it. So pushing it through these pipelines that are assessing all the different kinds of health that I described. And it's a non-trivial problem. It's not like you see a little vibration and from that you can immediately tell what kind of train is on it. There's a lot of stuff that happens where translate some of this real-time streaming data into a type of format that you can use machine learning tools and some classical physical modeling in order to infer all this important stuff about what's actually happening. So imagine these these little sensors going up and down are actually describing this entire physical environment, this real world operating environment that is being translated into these ones and zeros. And so that's the second big piece. And then the, the final big piece is actually, as you said, it's the dashboard, it's the tools, 
that are allowing the people who are doing maintenance to make to make smarter decisions. So, you know, we built this entire UI around visualizing things like, you know, maintenance quality checks and 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 the other things that I was describing that help you determine if if what you're doing is working. Got it. So we've got the whole nine yards in this particular project applied to primarily these junctures in the track, which are so critical into the infrastructure of rail. In terms of what they were able to sort of talk about for results, I mean, presumably they, you know, they let you put it on the website, but in terms of what they saw from this that made it a win for them, what do we have that we can talk about? Yeah, I mean, the most important result, which was really, really, really great to see, was actually being able to determine what didn't need to happen. So, you know, rather than saying we detected tons of failure, we were actually able to say, look, like you're doing tons of maintenance here, but it's not actually necessary. So let's not do this tamping activity because we can prove that actually there's low vertical displacement and no signs of voiding on the track. So in other words, the track bed is healthy. Things are working as they should. You can save that maintenance activity and you don't need to close a track. You don't need to slow down trains over here because we can keep them up and full of capacity because we know that actually there's everything is working normally. And so this was like a really, really good thing to see. This is what you want to see. You want to see that actually the maintenance regime is working and it's a testament to how good network rail is. But because you're able to do it in a kind of informed way, you can change all the business processes that go into this maintenance regime and save a lot of time in sort of not having to create delays and and speed restrictions. And ultimately what we found is a sort of potential savings of about 20% in delayed minutes. So that's that's a huge savings to operating a rail at full capacity. Got it. Okay, cool. Yeah, because I was going to say, surely being like, hey, we were able to reduce the amount of maintenance that didn't need to happen. Well, it's tough. Obviously, you'd have to measure that before they install you guys and then after they install you guys. But it sounds like all things said and done here, in terms of actually doing that, they must have had some measure in place to be able to say, hey, we think we might be in the ballpark of, of 20 cent reduction, you said, in kind of that that downtime uh, that down. than what That's we had exactly. before. So they had yeah. some metric of measuring this before you guys. Actually, believe it or not, that includes the entire time with them. Because, I mean, when you're introducing you know these disruptive technologies, into these environments and you're really expecting a big change in how business which is you know i mean rail has been around for many hundreds Forever, of years yeah. you're asking them to change you know core business practices it doesn't happen overnight so you know you have to do a whole bunch of different things you need to prove that your device can be deployed safely you need to prove that it, it, it technically works you need to prove that it can integrate with the systems that they have natively. And then you have to do all these kind of measurements, right, around producing all of these valuable insights and then be able to prove, as I said, that, you know, what is the base case? What is the, the normal status quo you're operating in? And what are we able to tell you that will allow you to change the status quo and produce a value? And this happens over the course of years. I mean, the yeah. average sales cycle like Konix is three years. It's it's a long, That's long significant. process. That's significant. Yeah, yeah. Into, into a full rollout and deployment. So you don't get you don't get to put hundreds of you know these devices yeah. on the track overnight. It's a long process that Got goes it. into uh, rolling out these kinds of technologies. So clearly, we have a work in progress. But you know, they've been able to get a sense of what were we looking at for kind of downtime beforehand and what are we looking at afterwards? And clearly they have enough of a result to, to continue working with you guys, which is good. Obviously, like you said, this is a very large, complicated installation and deployment. Many applications are long, complicated. And, and in fact, many that are long and complicated 
don't ever see the light of day. This one really did, and it's a success story for you guys. If we could think about one thing that went right between the data, the teams, whatever it was, one success factor that made this project come to life and turn into ROI, what would be kind of a transferable lesson from this project that might help other enterprise leaders? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. Well, what I would say the most obvious one is is just this problem of ground truth that, you know, when you start a project like this, the biggest obstacle that you need to solve is just collecting valid data and understanding what you're looking at. And this is, I think, every AI company, and I've been in kind of this industrial space for a long time, really just struggles with that. The customer doesn't have data. The environment is super, super noisy and messy. And this is the problem in industrial AI, getting enough data that you can start making some of these very, very smart predictions. And so for us, that was especially challenging because we're introducing data into a, an environment where there really isn't very much, where yeah. you know we're, we're the sensor on the ground collecting it for the first time. And it's a non-trivial exercise. So you, know, you need to deal with the fact that you're managing this, this incredibly geographically distributed network that in all these different geographies, they all look different. So in some places it frosts in the winter and that changes yeah. how the, the sensor or you know, you have to glue it into the track sometimes as opposed to screw it. And the, yeah, you know, the glue yeah, 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 yeah. So it's this, this massive engineering problem as well. But if you do it right and you're able to adjust for all of the different factors of different geographies and clean up all the messiness and collecting the data, you end up with this kind of beautiful and elegant footprint of everything that's happening inside the environment. So it was really a collaboration between our team, between the client team, where, where you know, they're really helping us with the engineering of, our, of, of this massive network. And we're working together to figure out what is actually happening on the track. And once you get the okay. answer to what is happening, it's a lot easier to then go from there and, and, and solve all the different core problems around when you should maintain what and when and things like this. If I can try to extrapolate a nutshell here, I know we're coming to the end of the episode, but I don't want to uh, miss words, so I'm going to get your feedback, but I'm hearing a lot of great, I think, transferable lessons. One of them, this ground truth rule, I always talk about it, getting data out of the real world is super hard ubiquitously. <laughs> like the real world, if you have a website and you're tracking activity, you live in like the easiest possible version of reality. If you're operating in the physical world outdoors, you're operating in the hardest version of reality for AI. So this is, you're right, non-trivial. And so to get to that ground truth, if I'm hearing you right, there was an overt emphasis on collaboration early on. What are the different kinds of equipment, screws, glues, frost, you know, what do these things look like when the sun's beaming on them for too long and they're overheating? What do they look like under these? And being able to say, what is the variance of what this stuff can look like that we need to train this system on? There was an overt collaborative effort where we acknowledged the challenge and focused on getting to those ground truth data points before we spread out. Is this the, the proper way to frame this? That's perfectly said. And what I would say is it's it's one part collaboration and it's another part just pro like pure problem solving. So, and I tell this advice to people all the time when they're going into this space is don't think of it as building an algorithm to solve a problem using prepared data. Think of it as building a whole bunch of tools and technologies that take the messy, dirty data, that clean up the, you know, all of the all of the false data, the invalid data, that solve all the different problems that prevent you from even getting data out of the hardware that's collecting it. And then you get to a point where you get to that clean data and it becomes an easy problem. But the real hard part are all those dirty problems. And that's that's what really drives success for industrial AI applications. Got it. Well, certainly a lesson that everybody in industrial could tune into and and frankly, a lot of AI projects 
a lot of folks who've run unsuccessful projects could probably look back and say, were we close enough to ground truth to get this thing started? So that's one worth noting down for our listeners here, Adam. I know we're up on time for this episode, but thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And that's a wrap for this episode of AI Success Factors, the idea of really deep partnership in determining what are the distinctions that matter. In in their case, what defines something that requires maintenance and what defines something that doesn't? What does that look like in the cold? What does that look like in the dark? What does that look like under lighting conditions? What does that look like for this kind of equipment versus that kind of equipment? Doing that hard work up front was critical for Adam and for this particular project, and it is without a doubt critical for essentially any large, complicated, bespoke enterprise AI project as well. So hopefully that was a transferable lesson for those of you tuned in. That's exactly what we're trying to do in this series. So when I got the idea for AI success factors late last year, it was from listeners like you talking about, can we highlight what has worked and why? This was a repeated question. And so hopefully this series is doing just that for you. If you have feedback about the AI success factor series, two ways you could share it that would mean the world. Number one, you can always reach me on LinkedIn, Dan Fagella at LinkedIn. I am always talking to one or two of our newsletter subscribers or our listeners about people they want to have on the show, suggested guests. Often I get approached by very interesting companies that want to be featured on the program. So if you have feedback about our episodes or about the show in general, feel free to reach out to me. Otherwise, if you've benefited from this show, it would mean the universe if you could share a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or what was called iTunes. You just find the AI and Business Podcast on iTunes and make sure to mention not just the review, but also what do you like about the show? What have you been able to learn and actually apply? Those ideas are the juice and the fuel that I share with my team when we think about our six-month editorial calendars. That's not just for what we write, that's for who we interview and what topics we ask. It really does come from you folks. So thank you so much for those of you that have already reviewed us. It really does mean the world. And if you've benefited from the program, again, please do consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple. Helps other people learn about the show, but also certainly fuels our fire when it comes to making a better show for you. So this is our sixth month at over 100,000 downloads. We are grateful to all of you listeners for that growth, and we hope to be able to continue to deliver things that are genuinely useful for you, focusing hard on the ROI of AI. So thank you again for tuning in. I look forward to catching you tomorrow. Again, remember, every Tuesday, we're still covering AI use cases and trends on Tuesday, but the new thing this year has been our AI Success Factors episodes on Monday. So back to use cases, trends it is tomorrow, and thanks for being a listener. I will catch you then.